was yet to come, which partly explains why we just felt we had to do it. We go right up to the grand climax of chapters 65 and 66. Tonight, we are dealing with that fundamental question, which was actually posed in 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. What kind of people ought you to be? And the answer from St. Peter, you ought to live holy and godly lives. And that, of course, is still God's call to each Christian as we await the completion of his salvation in each of our lives. But interestingly, tonight's chapter, chapter 56, looks at the state of society at the time of the restored uh, kingdom when they come back from exile. So I'm just going to give you a, a quote, another quote from uh, my friend Alec Mateer. And this is what he says about this chapter. I'm not saying much more in introduction, but this is a, a good quote that sets the scene pretty well, I think. And the same sort of thought of Davy Ellison of cycles of judgment and salvation. This is what Alec Mateer says. The vision of an ideal worldwide community of the Lord's Sabbath people, that's the first eight verses of chapter 56, is balanced by the very different actuality of a mixed bag of the righteous and compromisers. That's in the second part of uh, this chapter and also into chapter 57. So God's coming interventions are going to bring judgment, they're going to bring salvation, and they too are promised again and again. So it's a prophecy really where we come and go a bit. I've just got blue tack to unstick and turn the page over and we're nearly there, right into the, the actual verses. Here we go. Verses 1 to 8, if you take a quick look there, I'm just going to give you a, a quick uh, overview. I'm not going to run through each verse at all. You're going to do all the hard work tonight, not me. In these verses, we find a lovely, very unusual inclusiveness, a reminder that God's plan of salvation and his wish to bless applies to everybody, even the most unexpected people. Um, you have here eunuchs, you have people who come from afar, foreigners who were looked down on in many ways, uh, and the people were not expected normally to mix particularly with foreigners. They were seen as of a lower order. They weren't God's people, were they? Uh, another famous commentator, Derek Kidner, said about this bit, uh, about the Sabbath in particular, which does reappear as a theme again and again, that this day for the Jews was not an end in itself, but a mark of loyalty to God and his covenant. So you could say as good Anglicans, it could be the equivalent perhaps of baptism, confirmation, the way we express our commitment. And for them, the Sabbath was the very heart of all that they did in obedience to the Lord and remembering what he'd done for them. So the emphasis on the Sabbath, don't think of the Isle of Skye or the Western Isles and how people in past times in the last century talked about the Sabbath. This is about people's commitment and obedience to the Lord. That's what it's about, his faithful people. Uh, that's the first eight verses. That's the first um, bit we're going to look at as we go through our questions tonight. The second bit, the rest of the chapter. And what we see here, and this brings us down to earth with a, a little bit of a bump, because the first eight verses generally are actually very positive, encouraging about what God's ideal is, what he wants to really do for his people. And that includes the unexpected who he brings in. 
but 9 to 12 bring the present reality which is actually pretty lousy because the spiritual leaders the watchmen uh, that refers back to ezekiel chapter 3 they're morally blind and they're asleep they're rubbish as watchmen they're going to allow evil to creep in so you've got rubbish spiritual leadership the religious leaders at that time were not doing their stuff and then similarly you have the leaders in society the people who presumably were not elected but were seen as the stalwarts the the ruling uh, group of people and they're called the shepherds and they're behaving just like undisciplined sheep it's pretty chaotic the sound of things they're actually predatory they're uncaring and as somebody has said they push greed and immoral escapism to the limit they're really way away from god and what he requires and we can contrast this with god's requirements of good true shepherds yes we could look at john 10 but we're not we're looking again towards ezekiel where there's a lovely uh, six verses or so ezekiel 34 which shows how good shepherds are meant to behave towards their flocks so that's it that's the overview of these four chapters we're starting to work through and in particular chapter 56 and we're now going to look at the couple of questions on this part of tonight's work and then i'm going to do a brief introduction on chapter 57 and you're going to unpack that uh, in whatever way when we all decide to do it so i'm going to hand back to ian and have a rest thank you thank you mike um, i'm now going to share the screen with the questions on uh, if i can find it and the questions the two questions on Isaiah uh, 56. So hopefully that will now appear on your screen. And uh, for the recording, because some people may be just listening to the audio, the questions are, uh, question one, what blessings does God promise to all those who seek to be obedient to his requirements? That's from verses one to eight. And the second question is, what is leadership like? And what are the consequences for them and the people from verses nine to 12? I'm now going to go back and unmute everybody, I hope. If I can work out how to do that. And yeah, so I'm going to unmute everybody. So feel free to talk. In verse 2, it says, happy is the mortal who does this, which is maintain justice and do what is right. Yes. It's very striking about foreigners and eunuchs, isn't it? Because think about the, the foreigners would not be able to go into the temple. The, <coughs> would be not complete so like disabled people or lame people who would not be able to go into the temple and yet this striking word comes where where these eunuchs are going to um, have uh, within his temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters that's fantastic isn't it verse five there and he will fill them with joy mm. verse seven indeed There's a lot about uh, a lot of words about keeping a grip, holding fast, and uh, 
there's a lot about really staying close to, to the Lord, um, binding themselves to him, that kind of thing, which I think is giving a, a message to us as to what he requires. To me, this is one of the most absolutely inclusive parts of, of all scripture. Isaiah is probably the most inclusive uh, book in the Old Testament. Clearly, the Gospels are extremely inclusive. You know, any sinner who repents has got that uh, opportunity before him or her. But here, you know, the, the inclusive nature of God's love is uh, really, really strong. It also chimes with some, some of the parts of Genesis which say that blessing to all people will come from, from God's people. Uh, and and this, is, this is very consistent with that, isn't it? Because if you, if you have um, uh, foreigners and eunuchs and people who are incomplete and so on, being blessed and, and being, able, being able to access God, that's a fantastic blessing that has come through God's people. Fantastic yeah. promise to hold on to. We're praying for the Muslim world during Ramadan that they will actually come to know this for themselves. How do we unpack the idea of joy in the house of prayer, God's house of prayer? Is that sort of fully part of the fellowship wherever people come together to worship him? Is it the temple somewhere else? Or is it just a kind of an image? Sorry, yeah, I'm uh, jumping towards the end. But it's a lovely expression. Mm. These I will bring to my holy mountain. He, he's doing a lot of active things, the Lord here, isn't he? Yeah. He's leading them into his uh, high place. Yeah. Yeah. And accepting their offerings so that you know, anybody who thinks, well, I'm not worthy, he accepts them. Yes, contrast the, certainly in Jesus' time, you know, the... the House of Prayer for All Nations was not a concept. You know, if you weren't Jewish, you weren't getting past the gates. No. I'm, I'm wondering what um, lies behind verse 5. Uh, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And I, I'll give them an everlasting name. And i thinking in terms of our adoption and our co-heirs with Jesus. Yeah. Mm. Also in verse eight, it, it says, uh, "I will gather others, other to others to them." So, besides those already gathered, so uh, there will be an increase in numbers of those worshiping and praying to the Lord. Indeed. It seems to speak of an inclusiveness which we can associate with the New Testament, but see rather less in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we take a look at the second question, Mike? Would that be okay? Yeah, let's move on. 
This is, this is very consistent with Jesus' treatment of the Pharisees and the and teachers of the law in the New Testament, isn't it? This chimes really well with that, alas. Yeah, everything was going so well when it was God taking the initiative in the first bit. Now it's what's going on in reality. So the ideal, that was good. We enjoyed those first eight verses. And now, oh dear. <laughs> yes. Those who ought to be doing the stuff are not, and they're abusing their position. Mm. Yeah, and look at look at verse ten. What's the point of having somebody on the on the walls looking out if they can't even see? It's, it's mm. not great, is it? Also, yeah, bark dogs can't bark. That's a bit rough. <laughs> they're obviously lazy as well because it says they lie around and dream. They love to sleep. There's a lot actually in the Bible about idleness, isn't there? Yeah, actually the the Proverbs are full of that. Very quiet, Rosemary. I think it's Rosemary trying to chime in, but it's really, uh, really quiet. I don't know if you can get close to the microphone, Rosemary. Are they on mute? No, they're just, they're, they're a long way away from the mic and it's... um. Can you hear us, Rosemary? Because we, you're, you're very hard to hear. Go ahead. Um, verse 11, the shepherds have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way. Can you hear me? Yes, we heard you. You mentioned verse 11 very quietly. Verse 11, the shepherds have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way. That's better. Ah, go ahead. We can hear you now. Not good. Want it again? No, no, we, we heard it. Uh, but. <clears throat> and then yeah, we yes, didn't from... hear you, Rosemary. Verse 12, they get drunk. Yes. Verse 12, they get drunk, she said. Yes. And also at the end of verse 11, it says they've all turned to their own way. Um, to their own gain, one and all. So they're sort of like in it for what they can get out of it themselves. Yes. Mm -hmm. A bit selfish, really. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yep. And the thought at the end of verse 12 is interesting. I hadn't noticed this, but it's fairly obvious, really. They think the way they are is fine. Let us drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow will be like today, or even far better. Great beyond measure. They're completely uh, without sensitivity to what, what God is requiring of them. My version says, and have an even bigger party. No <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh dear. It, yes, if it wasn't, it'd be funny if it wasn't sad. Yes. Yeah. So I think we can probably move on and just say that that whole section is showing that God's ideal has really uh, it's got something going on against it which is the actual poor quality of the leadership which could lead to people and is leading the people astray and I think there are messages in there for the church today for leaders today uh, and God's ideal must be similar in our own context. More of that later when we look at whether this is particularly speaking to us. But I think, as always, we will find some resonances in there. Right. Uh, I'm, just not going to take moment, too long. I'm, I'm going, going to move on to chapter 57, if you want to try and...
Can, my, can I just ask you to pause one moment because I'm going to mute everybody apart from you. Yes. So just give me a moment. All right. Go ahead, Mike. You're the only person who can speak. Please, please proceed. <laughs> Thank you. Right. So in chapter 57, we move on again with this theme of we've got the ideal, which is just what God would want, and we've got the actual, the reality, which is actually somewhat uh, depressing. And much of this chapter is not positive. It's not good news. But don't, don't give up yet. So here we see from Isaiah that there are stark divisions in what is really now an unjust society. You've got the ungodly and you've got the faithful. Uh, I think it may be Mattia, but one of the commentators was saying society is seen here as divided into two types of family. Uh, one is God's family, those who follow him faithfully, and the other is like a prostitute's family or a, a morally very lax uh, sexually immoral but in many other ways immoral uh, family where people are you know into false gods all sorts of strange practices sadly perhaps even sadder than their actions is that the unrighteous here don't seem to realize that they're heading towards a future without hope without peace verses one and two and they're heading to destruction but they're, they're a bit like lost souls, really. That, that's what's going to come in. And the theme here is really that those who stay close to the Lord, who are faithful to him, they will know real peace right the way through uh, into death and eternal life. Those that stay stuck in this way, like the people here, they are without hope. Um, I'm just going to give you a quick quote from Alec Matia, then head towards the actual verses. Again, there's two real sections. Alec Matia, in his uh, devotional commentary, says, and I think it's fairly obvious in verse 1 and 2, and then later towards the end, the truth of the matter, he says, is that those who are right with God are in fact the ones who are secure in the enjoyment of peace. And in times like this, when you look out at how the news is coming through, you just get the feeling that people want to be safe, secure, at peace. They want the very best for their families, for their friends, for colleagues. You know, they're longing for a, a real kind of peace and a kind of calmness. We're very unstill. We're all anxious at least, maybe fearful, don't know what on earth is going to happen. Uh, and we're told, you know, the biggest economic disaster in years is yet to come whilst we're all quite comfortably tucked in at home, most of us. So I think these words are relevant. But what we're getting here is where does real peace come from? And that's a good thing to get the grip of at times like this. <clears throat> so verses 3 to 13a, the first part of verse 13, they are really, as you will see, uh, a pretty de depressing description of a sexually off-the-rails family or a society that's lost its its moral compass. It's, it's just completely in a mess. Its members are living hopeless and God-excluded lives. Evil has flooded in and they grow weary with their pointless existence. But they stagger on, they keep going in this immoral frame of mind. They can't get a way out of it. And actually, that's probably true of all sinners, that we need God to be active 
to come in, extend his hand and pull us out. And we mustn't forget that that's how all of us in different ways were when God rescued us, when he showed us the, the truth of the gospel and the person of Jesus as he is. So the people here, according to Isaiah, their eternal prospects are probably worse than bleak. They're non-existent in terms of peace and joy and fellowship with God. They're relying on all the wrong things. Their moral compass is completely wonky and they're heading really to the rocks in every way. So for them, there is no apparent prospect of entering into peace with God, which is the title, of course, of a very famous book by Billy Graham, written in 1953, which I think comes in one of the later daily updates. I won't say more now as I wrote it. But, you know, peace with God, it is quite a theme for a time like this. Where is it? How do we get it? And is there peace to be had in a world like this going through what it is right now? The final verses are absolutely great because they straighten things up and they point us again to God. From 13b, we have one of these lovely buts. And as a but in scripture, it's normally good news, I find. But the man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land, possess my holy mountain, and it will be said, and so on and so on. So here are more comforting words. And they're really based on the God we have rather than the people we are when we're stuck in our sins. So what we've had tonight, the beginning in 56, God's ideal. Uh, the second part of chapter 56, oh dear, hang on, rubbish leadership and people being led astray and not being helped to do the right thing. Now we have another gloomy passage of immorality, worshipping false gods, all that stuff, which really offends our holy God. But now, having had a lot of verses which are quite depressing, we have this um, a look at the prospects for those who actually do rely on God and belong to the family of the faithful. Now, that should include all those who belong to the church if we're keeping our eyes fixed on the Lord. So this little section towards the end, it is saying that whatever the past injustices that the faithful have been going through because one of the bad things is that the unjust society picks on God's own people and there have been martyrs throughout history and Christians mistreated there are today it's just we probably don't see them in our streets but they're there as we know in other countries and other parts of the world but there are some lovely promises here to God's faithful he is holy he is just and he will intervene and there is a firm future hope of restoration, of healing, and everlasting peace. And it's to those who have humbly and obediently bound themselves to him, kept close. So the conclusion, the overview to this is that what Isaiah is really saying in terms of holding out the great promise is that through the Messiah's victory, the faithful will experience uh, full joy and full peace as God fulfills his plan and in fact we can turn tonight's theme completely round tonight's theme uh, present realities and future hope this last section does give some wonderful hope 
we can turn that all around now and look at this in a slightly different way. The promise here from Isaiah is that there will be a coming together, a binding together through Jesus of all our past hopes for good and for the best and all of God's future realities rather than man's current realities. So the future is going to be great for those who follow through with him. However tough it is at present, whatever the present realities might be in terms of suffering and difficulty, we have these promises and it's through the coming Messiah, which of course is largely what Isaiah is going to come to a resounding conclusion on, but not quite yet. So that's it, the second uh, chapter there. That's the overview. And it's coming and it's going, isn't it? It's grim, it's basic, it's down to earth, it's joyful, and then oh dear, but. And it's really something like the Old Testament overall. Great bits, a good king comes on the throne, something wonderful happens, God intervenes, and then what happens? The people start complaining, moaning, going off. But here we have from Isaiah that solid promise that ultimately the victory will be won. And if we've been faithful, we will be part of God's future plans. That's, that's it. We've got two questions again, I think. Very good. I'm just going to share the questions. Give me one moment whilst I do that. Great, and so you should see those on your screen now uh, for the recording. Question one from Isaiah 57 is, what is the actual state of society described here and how do we compare today, verses one to 13a? And question two is, how is God going to act towards those who seek to draw close to him? And that's from verses 13b to 21. Uh, I'm now going to uh, unmute everybody, I hope. I can work out how to do that. Great. Most of you should be unmuted. Go ahead. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? You know, <laughs> no, um, no, right. Nothing much has changed. I can't see that um, in verse 5b that they can't see that slaughtering children is a really bad thing to do. Mm. It's just like they were so blind that they just couldn't see it. Mm. Unfortunately, it still happens in our world today. Yeah. I, I mean, Sue, I'm sure you're mm. aware in Uganda mm. of child sacrifice. Mm. Gosh. People sacrificing their own children and in this country. It's really shocking. Mm. It was one of the things that really offended uh, God and led to all the military action when the, uh, the, uh, the people inherited the land when they went in to take over from the Canaanites because mm. they had all these sort of practices and 
they were really notorious for it. And, and the Lord says it's absolutely dreadful, dreadful stuff. And he doesn't, uh, you know, just leave it be. There will be retribution. There will be judgment um, for all sin. But I think in particular, this sort of stuff is just way, way beyond what his creation was all about in the first place. It's like they're um, like searching for something because it says in verse one, you journeyed to Molech with oil and you sent envoys far away. It's like they're searching for something. Verse 10, you grew weary from your many wanderings, but you did not say it's useless. You found your desire rekindled. It's like they're looking for something. They can't find it, but although they find it's useless, they they don't take a different direction. It's like they're stuck. Yeah, doesn't it ring true to our society today, though, Julie? Just listening to you describing it, there's a lot of panning around. There's mindfulness. There's people looking for this. There's people yeah. looking at that. There's people looking at the other. They're scrambling, but they won't come to the gospel. They won't come to the Lord Jesus. They won't bow the knee because repentance is just un unpalatable. Mm -hmm. Just like people... It seems like um, in verse 11 to 13, God's trying to warn them, really, isn't he? You know, your, your idols, you know, you have to cry out to your idols. The wind will carry them off, you know. Um, but they, 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 they just, it doesn't change their mind. He sort of like warn them, you know, have I not kept silent and closed my eyes? And so you do not fear me. You know, it's just like, you know, I'm still here. Can't you see me? God's saying, but it's like, they're just blind. They really are just blind to it. And are you afraid of these idols? Do they terrify you? And there is a sense in which it, it does hold people in fear. Yeah, maybe. Mm. Yeah. Under curses and witchcraft. Yeah. Mm. But that's that's a form of religious performance, isn't it? And they get trapped in that, and it it perpetuates because they don't want, as Julia said, they don't actually want to know the answer. It's just this constant sense of searching for something, but it won't. Any anyone but Christ uh, will be okay. Yeah, will do. Um, and there's a refusal, isn't there, to come to that? I mean, it's sort of interesting contrast with the very religious looking performance of Israel's watchmen that, you know, they were going through the moat. They were ba basically, why would anything be wrong? They were doing everything that was written down for them to be, to do. Yeah. Um, but actually they, they were as bad as at not discovering or allowing God to do the things that, you know, that he wanted to do to bring, he, I noticed how much it was God who would give them joy, God who would bring them together. Uh, and I find that quite interesting, and I think there's a cautionary tone uh, for for the for the church in the West, where we, I mean, I, 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 
bear in mind, I, 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 I agree with what Carol was saying about idleness, but I think there's an element of tipping over into performance as well. So it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting couple of chapters. It throws us actually sometimes how different are we from the world? If the world is running around trying to do all of these things, but not looking for the answer, and, and we're not doing it, and we're in the church, and we're the ones in the churches, uh, then it's an interesting and, and uh, difficult scenario for God to work into, isn't it? There's a, there's a theme as well, which I've missed until tonight, but if you look at verse 1 in 57, the righteous perish and no one ponders it in his heart. And yeah. then if you go into verse 11, um, you've neither remembered me nor pondered this in your heart. There's a sense in which they're being criticised for their sheer carelessness, their lack of thought. They're not pondering. There's no depth into what they're doing. They're, they're an unthinking people. They're not looking at real consequences and their values are all, all astray. And again, in the church, I guess, we can, be, we can, even now, some of us who are doing daily updates, whatever, we presumably can be so busy doing certain things or supporting people, which in itself isn't wrong, but we can do that and lose track of precisely what God is doing or saying. Mm. But well, it feels it's like a society that's, it's like a mouse on a, a wheel, isn't it? It's just yeah. rushing and rushing and, and getting into more and more trouble. Yeah. Can, I just, um, can I just draw a sort of comparison? In 56, 5 and 7, the Lord is with his people in the temple. In verse 15 of 57, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive them. So God's, yes, there's the temple where they worship, but God lives in a high and holy place, but he's actually with us every moment, reviving us, with us. I, I think about the, um, it says, uh, how do we compare today? Well, um, when you drew on verse one of chapter 57, the righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. Um, it's a bit like, uh, I've seen things going on with like people's benefits where they uh, have these um, health assessments to see if they, uh, for work capability and they're just trying to take their money away and um, they, they're declared fit for work when they really aren't and then their benefits stop and uh, it's just like you know there were so many deaths because of it and it's just like a money-saving venture from the government and no one takes it to heart but you know there was a huge outcry but it, it's still going on very disturbing picture isn't it that devout men are taken away in verse one 
you know, contrast the, the end of chapter 57, the verse 18, even though the Lord has seen their ways, but mm. he will heal them. He will guide them and restore them and comfort, uh, restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Again, it's his activity, isn't it? It's very much God is taking the initiative. He will heal the contrite. He will heal those who seek, seek him and follow him. Great. Do you want to do any summing up, Mike, or how would you want to conclude our... Um, do you want uh, to do the second question? Yeah, go ahead. We're dabbling in it, but yeah, let's carry on for a, a few more minutes on... No problem. Please go ahead. Anything that people can pick up from that final section about um, what God is going to do actively for those who actually do stay close. And actually, as we just heard, those who have been right off and enraged him. Hmm. I think in verse 19, we're coming back to the heart of it, which is peace, peace to those far and near, and I will heal them. I get the sense in all of this that God doesn't really like being angry. He doesn't like seeing his creation going wrong and his people going astray at all. Hence, the prophets come and really sock it to them, just as Peter did at Pentecost, just as Stephen did. You know, they didn't pull any punches because people needed to be shocked out of their behavior. But the sense is that God is not happy at all in having to, to deal with such rebellious people. And he's doing whatever he possibly can to help them turn away. In verse 16, it says, I, I will not continually accuse, nor will I always be angry. For then the spirits would grow faint before me, even the souls that I have made. So, in other words, if he, no one would stand a chance, would they, really, if uh, God continued to be angry? And that is, you know, we just take it for granted so much in the New Testament that forgiveness is just so readily available for us, isn't it? Going back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 57, godly people pass away. They often die before their time. And I think for me, that's really encouraging that God is protecting them from the evil to come, mm. and that they will rest in peace. Because, I mean, at all times, and particularly, it's obviously very current at the moment, godly people are dying before their time. We know that God doesn't heal everybody. And, you know, that question of why doesn't God heal so-and-so, or how can you be a loving God if he lets so many pass away? But I think those two verses I find really helpful. Yeah. Yes. Uh, looking at this chapter, though, I'm, what I see in this is a lot of, um, at the start, you, it, it says, uh, you, you went, you made, you have. Um, and then when we get to the, the verse 14 and that, and then we get, uh, I will, I will, I will. And it's, it's just this contrast of what 
society's doing you and what God does, I will. And it's, it's very reassuring. I will guide him and restore comfort to him. It's, it must be nice to think I'm going to get my comfort back. <laughs> yeah, and also it says, I've seen their ways, but I will heal them. I like that bit, but I will heal them. Unfortunately, there's another but which rather negates my earlier point, verse 20. <laughs> and the chapter ends on a, a gloomy note again to show the seriousness of remaining in sin. Mm-hmm. It's very poetic, but it's not a nice thought. Mm-hmm. The wicked are like the tossing sea, they, which cannot rest. I'm sure David can conjure up all sorts of images of uh, being on <laughs> the ship, not, not great fun. Yeah, waves cast up mire and mud, you know, just stirring up yet more rubbish. And mm. and there's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Yeah. So it's a mixture of, you know, reminders, warnings. But I think Martin's point is absolutely key. If it's down to you, i.e. us, outcomes are going to be one way. If we leave things to God, if he is able to intervene in situations and we respond then it will it will be very very different but we we don't have a very cuddly um easy comfortable uh faith do we it's not supposed to be we're saved and all will be easy and well and we won't go through tough times here we've got i think a very realistic picture of the way we can be the way society can be and lovely reminders of whatever is in front of you in all of that god is like this and this is what he wants for you and he will find a way to make it happen i was uh, i'm just struck then with what you were saying about the the tossing sea and that and then i i thought about jesus in the boat when there was a storm i mean his mm-hmm. his his love of god and his his perfection meant that he was able to sleep through that. He had, he had peace, even though the boat was rocking. Yeah. I think this comes back to what I said a little bit earlier, which was about our, our need for performance and God's desire to, to fill us. And, and I think those, those are really important themes that come out of these chapters. Um, and, and there's a good question about how do we get that balance right? <laughs> allow God as Mike said earlier to sort of show us what he was going to do and do it um, rather than getting anxious about it it's quite interesting balance and I think you know though Anne pointed this out but the first two verses they're the ones that Matita latched onto in his end of section thoughts uh, which I thought was a bit odd, but it was all about um, how the faithful can die with peaceful hearts, whereas sinners don't have that peace to die with. Uh, and it's the difference between those whose hope is totally in, in God. And of course, at a time like this, when people are suddenly taken away, um, not seen again by their families, um, I mean, there's no such thing as a, as a good death in terms of how how we we cope with it but for the christian peace can and will be involved eternal peace but for others there is there is no hope 
Mm. That's what this chapter, I think, is saying. Yes. And of course, at that point, when people are dying, if they are conscious, um, that's when the reality will be there. Do they really know peace? Are they mm. right with God? Are they uh, just coming to that natural final step? Or is it a terrible time of uncertainty, anxiety, uh, grieving on behalf of the dying as well as those who are going to be bereaved? It's, um, but Mattia actually got straight in on those first two verses and took that as his main theme, possibly because normally we don't talk about such things at all. At a time like this, we, we tend to think about them even if we're not talking about them. Very good. Have we concluded, Mike, do you think? Shall we open I think it? we probably have. Should, should we ask the, the vicar perhaps to pray or we can all have a, an open time of prayer, whatever people want to do? Mm. Well, let's finish with these words. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for making yourself known to us, for forgiving us, for saving us, for making us yours. We pray that we would not slip into the lives of, of performance and being seen to do the right things, uh, but that our hearts would seek you lowly and contrite, and we would know your blessing and your peace and live lives of obedience to you for your glory amen 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 thank you mike you are